Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this time to learn our faith, but also to learn a little bit about the, uh, again, I want to say the evils of the world, and uh, I don't want to spend too much time on evil, but um, again, I think we have to know what is going on in our world, and so uh, many of you have asked me to share uh, Fulton Sheen's um, reflections on communism, uh, because it's an evil that just won't go away, it seems. Um, and I think more of us are asking, what is communism all about? And, um, you know, we hear of it in Russia, in China, in Cuba. And, of course, when we read our history books, we see where uh, communism was tried and, of course, the uh, repercussions that happened, again, to the people. And, uh, again, it's just... Um, it's terrible. It really is, you know. I don't know. I'm trying to be uh, kind here on the radio, but uh, still, I think we all just, when we look at those history books, we see uh, the evils of communism and the leaders and what happened. And uh, so I think we need to go back to school. And uh, many times we call this the school of Sheen, uh, where we just listen from the good teacher. And so Archbishop Sheen will share with us today uh, a recording uh, back from 1947. And he will be speaking on the philosophy of communism. And of course, it comes from his Catholic Hour radio addresses. And he turned uh, not only this talk, but uh, his series of talks on communism into a very popular book called Communism and the Conscience of the West. And so I'll share with you a few links uh, to uh, find that book if you're interested. But uh, today we're going to uh, listen to Fulton Sheen talk about the philosophy of communism and also how to meet communism, how to uh, interact uh, with society when people are proposing this to you and, um, of course, remind them of uh, how it failed time and time again and how it's um, a philosophy that has errors in it. So, again, I'm looking forward to these two reflections today. So may I invite you, just as I always do, to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he speaks about the philosophy of communism. Please enjoy. We present now the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen, who delivers the third address in his series generally entitled, Light Your Lamps. The title of today's address is, The Philosophy of Communism. Friends, I'm very grateful to the National Council of Catholic Men for making an exception today and allowing me 23 minutes to develop the philosophy of communism and its view of history, ethics, and religion. 
the communist attitude toward man, we will discuss in another broadcast. An even fuller development of today's theme will be sent you free if you request it. I suppose it is safe to say that about 99 and 44 100 percent of the American people think that communism is just an economic system. It is not. Communism is a complete philosophy of life. What the Germans called a Weltanschauung, a total view of the world, different from all other secular systems, in that it seeks to dominate not only the economic periphery of life, but to control man's inner life as well, his intellect, his will, and his heart. Communism has a theory and a practice. It wishes to be not only a state, but a church judging the consciences of men. It is a doctrine of salvation, and as such claims the whole man, body and soul, in this sense, it is totalitarian. Last Sunday, we told you that communism was Western in its origin, and today we will prove it. Communism had its origin in the brain of a German, Karl Marx, who was born of Jewish parents on the 5th of May in the year 1818 in the city of Treves, Germany. At the age of six, Karl Marx, along with his family, were baptized and became members of one of the Christian sects, not for religious, but for political reasons. His mental development came from three countries. He took his philosophy from Germany, his sociology from France, and his economics from England. Our concern is with the first two. The first stage in the development of his thought began at the age of 19, when he enrolled at the University of Berlin to study law, but in his own language, to wrestle with the problems of philosophy. At that particular time, all the German universities were obliged to teach the philosophy of Hegel, who had died in the year 1831. Now, in order to understand the philosophy of communism, I have to bore you with this philosophy of Hegel for just a minute or two. And bore is the word, for it is very difficult, and Hegel is responsible for a great deal of modern nonsense. Marx began studying Hegel and plunged into his almost unintelligible abstractions and intensified his study of the philosophy of Hegel that was known as dialectical idealism. Idealism, because it was concerned with thought, ideas, mind, spirit. Dialectical, because that was the method by which thoughts or ideas developed, namely by dialectics or debating or contradiction. For Hegel, there was no such thing as an unchanging truth. Ideas are fluid, and they are arrived at by a debating or dialectical process in which, like a tennis ball, they are batted back and forth over a net until finally a point is scored. 
first there is the affirmation of an idea, then its negation by another idea, and finally a synthesis or a union of the two. Suppose the problem under discussion was the decoration of a room. Here's an example of dialectics. One group says, let us do it in blue. Another group argues, no, green. And then finally, out of the conflict of ideas, there comes a synthesis of opinion, and one settles for red. Now, this, I know, is an oversimplification of the philosophy of Hegel. And if he heard me state it this way, he would probably turn over in his grave. But remember, it's often the business of philosophers to complicate and obscure the simple things of life. It's a very peculiar world in which we live, that when you are clear, people think you are simple. And when you are very confusing, people think you are learned or even a philosopher. Now, Marx was tremendously impressed with this dialectics of Hegel. In fact, so much so that in the year 1841, Marx presented to the University of Jena a doctoral thesis that was so dialectical in character that the second sentence contradicted the first and the third united the first two, and on and on and on. In this crazy piece of writing, Marx wrote, I hate all the gods. Now begins the second stage in the development of Marx's philosophy. The very year that he received his doctorate, 1841, there appeared the most popular attack on religion, which had been delivered in Germany up to that time. While other Germans, like Strauss and Bauer, were trying to destroy Christianity through historical criticism, Ludwig Feuerbach, in his essence of Christianity, tried to destroy philosophy with materialism. Marx read his book, and he said his enthusiasm was unbounded. Feuerbach had killed the idealism of Hegel, which Marx never liked anyway, and destroyed all religion by showing that it was an illusion projected by the brain of man. And that pleased the irreligious Marx tremendously. Feuerbach did all this by denying that there was such a thing as thought or idea, or mind, or spirit, and by affirming that the only thing in the world is matter. As Feuerbach put it, man is what he eats. Now that the gods are dethroned, Marx got what he thought was a brilliant idea. Would it not be wonderful, he thought, to take this dialectical method, which Hegel applies to ideas, and apply it to matter? or to history. Marx then patched the dialectics that he took from Hegel to the materialism that he took from Feuerbach and out of that hodgepodge of dialectical materialism there came the philosophy of communism. From now on Marx would say not ideas but matter expands by contradiction which he felt was at the very core of the universe. Hence, there's no need of God to explain matter because matter is endowed with motion. It develops by shocks, opposition, clashes, struggles, catastrophes. 
whole universe that marks as dialectical or contradictory. Can't you see what is coming? Just suppose you change one word, dialectical, into revolutionary, what have you. Matter is revolutionary. So just as soon now as Marx begins to apply his ideas to society, he will say society is revolutionary. Where did he get that idea? Well, just as he stole his first idea from Hegel, stole his second idea from Feuerbach, so now he steals his third from Proudhon, who was a Frenchman. Marx had read and was tremendously impressed with a pamphlet that was written by a French printer, Proudhon, on the subject of property, to which Proudhon was trying to apply the dialectics of Hegel. And one night at the Paris lodgings of a famous Russian revolutionist, Bukhanin, Marx met Proudhon and expounded to him dialectical materialism and his application to politics. Proudhon, the Frenchman, said to Marx, Marx, you're a typical German. You're way up in the air with your abstractions. No one is interested in these problems. The big problem today, said Proudhon, is economic, not political. It is social, not Hegelian. And he said to Marx, if you want to keep your dialectics, you had better begin applying it to property. And this Proudhon did by suggesting that perhaps capital was the affirmative side of dialectics. And that in its turn begot its negation, which was labor. Somewhere there ought to be a synthesis in which both would disappear. Marx called this synthesis communism. And where the Frenchman led, the German followed. Inspired by Proudhon, Marx now decided to apply his dialectics to history as he had applied it once before to matter, and he came up with the idea that history is nothing but the story of class struggle or contradiction between those who own property and those who do not own property, or what we today would call capital and labor. If you have a private property system, said Marx, then you get a literature, an art, a philosophy, and a religion to support the iniquitous system. And these things are just like foam, said Marx, upon the beer of private property. Take, for example, the commandment, thou shalt not steal. How did that come into existence? Well, that's the concoction of capitalists, say the communists. They invented it in order to defend their ill-gotten goods. Doesn't it follow then that if you do away with free enterprise and private property, you no longer need morality and religion? How do away with private ownership and production? By violent confiscation of that property under the leadership of communists. Let Marx tell you. I am quoting him here verbatim. This will be done by revolution in which the working class will use its political supremacy to wrest by degrees all capital from the bourgeoisie to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state 
it may be taken for granted that bloody conflicts are coming. Far from opposing so-called excesses and making examples of hated individuals or public buildings to which hateful remembrances are attached by sacrificing them to the popular rage, such examples must not only be tolerated, but their direction must ever be taken in hand. The arming of the workers with rifles and ammunitions must be carried out at once, and steps be taken to prevent the rising of the army, which would be directed against the workers. The workers need not be misled by democratic platitudes about freedom. Their battle cry must be revolution in permanence. And that brings us to the communist theory of ethics. It has a negative and a positive side. Negatively, it denies that morality which is based on the eternal law of God and reflected in conscience. Since it is not God, but economics which make morality. As Lenin put it, we deny all morality taken from superhuman or non-class conceptions. We say that this is a deception, a swindle, a befogging of the minds of the workers and peasants in the interests of landlords and capitalists. From a positive side, communism teaches that the end justifies the means. The needs of the revolution determine morality. Hence, whatever fosters the revolutionary overthrow of democracy or the violent dispossession of those who own property is a morally good act. Whatever hinders the revolution, such as a refusal to take orders from a dictator or a refusal to think the way that you are supposed to think, is a morally bad act. That is the ethics of communism. Democracies do not seem to understand why communism extends a friendly hand to religion one year and then the next year persecutes it. Why it allies itself at one time to democracy and then at another time seeks to overthrow it. Why at one time it sides with the Nazis and then fights against them. This is very easy to understand if you know anything about communism. It happens that these contradictory attitudes were developed as techniques, each one being thought best at the time for furthering world revolution. Is there any limit to chicanery, duplicity, and deviltry? None. Absolutely none. I do not want you to take my word for it. I think perhaps I'd better quote Lenin at this point. He says, It is necessary to use any ruse, cunning, unlawful method, evasion, concealment of the truth. And Stalin has the same idea. Dictatorship means nothing more nor less than the power which directly rests on violence, which is limited not by any laws, 
or restricted by any absolute rules. And from ethics, we pass on to the subject of religion. It is sometimes said that communism is not opposed to religion. Do not believe it. This is untrue. It may happen that communism will give the Orthodox Church a right to worship, provided it becomes an instrument of pan-Slavism for the communication of communism. But this conception and concession is for tactical purposes only and is granted at the cost of freedom of religion. Atheism and communism are as inseparable as a head and a body. Two statements of Marx prove it. Marx argues, man has been divorced from himself in two ways, by religion and by private property. Religion divorces a man from himself by subordinating him to God. Private property divorces a man from himself by subordinating him to an employer. It follows that if man is ever to be restored to himself, both religion and private property must be destroyed. That was why Marx contended that the transformation of society must begin with the criticism of religion. A statement of Marx that is not generally known, but which puts communism's attitude toward religion in a nutshell, is this. Now, this is Marx speaking. Communism begins when atheism begins. Let our educators and our legislators ponder well over that statement. Such is the philosophy of communism. I am not going to offer any criticism, none whatever, because I believe that I am talking to intelligent people who can immediately see all of its fallacies. You can also see that the philosophy of communism or dialectical materialism is nothing but a crazy quilt made up of patches of Hegel and Feuerbach and Proudhon all sewn together to cover up the nakedness of Marx's own thinking. One might just as well try to make a living organism out of the head of an ox, the body of a canary, and the tail of a dinosaur as to try and make sense out of this intellectual stew. Note that there is not a single Russian idea in this whole philosophy of communism. Not a one. It is bourgeois, western, materialistic and capitalistic in its origin. It was a creature of its age and could never have arisen in the 13th or even the 18th century because the influence of Christianity then was too strong in the world. Only when the organism of the Western world began to weaken could the germ infect it. 
Well, if the intellectual origin of communism is Western, how did it ever get into Russia? The concrete way in which it became effective there in its final form happened during the First World War. Germany was anxious to save herself, and she felt that her cause could be helped if she could win Russia away from the Allies. One way of doing this was to start a revolution in Russia. Accordingly, the German general staff tossed 31 revolutionists into a boxcar marked extraterritorial, attached it to a train leaving indirectly for Russia. In this boxcar was Vladimir Yulanov, better known to the world as Lenin, who on arriving in Petrograd, mounted an armored car and began preaching the revolution. There was something fitting about Germany assisting in the birth of communism in Russia. Germany had already given birth to the theory of communism, so now it would give birth to its practice. And Russia, in its turn, paid back its debt to Germany in 1939, when the ignominious treaty between the Nazis and the communists was signed, which allowed the Nazis for two years to overrun Europe, and which proved that there is no radical opposition between Nazism and communism. Do not take my word for it. Take Molotov's, who on that occasion said, Fascism is only a matter of taste. And our friendship has been sealed in blood. Unfortunately, it turned out to be the blood of Poland. Now we know from captured Nazi documents that in 1940, Russia was actually willing to join with the Nazis to gain the Dardanelles in the Middle East. And in 1943, it was ready again to sign a separate peace with Germany. So now, make up your minds. There are only two philosophies of life from which you can choose. Only two. The philosophy of those who believe in God and those who follow anti-God, and each has its symbol. The symbol of the one is the clenched fist that stands for hatred and for violence and for destruction. The one gesture that turns the hand of man, which was meant to be an instrument of art, into that which most closely resembles the claw of a beast. And the other symbol, the symbol of the folded hands. They cannot strike, for they were not made for offense. They cannot protect for they were not made for defense. They can only imprecate, only pray. A carnal decade, ten Gothic spires aspiring heavenward for the souls of men. And by and through these folded hands, may the race of Cain be brought beneath the cross where there is a man unfurled upon it like a wounded eagle. And through our charities and our prayers, may their clenched fists, as it were, open and release their hate. 
And then when hate has gone out of the world, those hands which were nailed by hate will detach themselves and fold themselves together, not in judgment, but in embrace that all the world may know how sweet is the love of Christ. God love you. And now we invite you to join Monsignor Sheen as he offers this prayer. Sovereign Lord and Master, we fought so long we forgot what we were fighting for. When we left thy light, like tiny gods we quarreled in the twilight of our petty rivalries. Give us in thy tender mercy that peace which we do not deserve. We pray for our president, our congress, and our court that they may sustain and defend religion and morality, without which no nation can long endure. Save us most of all from ourselves. Restore love to our broken homes, the joy of a good conscience to our frustrated lives, the four freedoms to the enslaved peoples of the world, and to our foolishness, give the wisdom of thy ways. Make us new men and light our lamps. In particular, we pray for the people of Russia, that individually and as a nation, they may realize their fondest hopes and know thee freely and openly, O Christ, whom they now love and serve in secret. Not for our worthiness, but for thy mercy. Grant us these petitions, O Christ Jesus, Son of the living God. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that first reflection from Archbishop Sheen on the philosophy of communism, and I know that I'm going to uh, return to that talk a few times as there was so much um, contained in that reflection, and so uh, that's the beauty of our on-demand feature here at Radio Maria. We can... uh, listen and re-listen to uh, previous broadcasts, so I would encourage you to do so. And so now I want to invite you to enjoy this reflection by Archbishop Sheen on how to meet communism. So I think what Fulton Sheen will do for us is give us a few tips of how to uh, have those engagements with uh, people who present communist ideas. And of course, we're going to meet them in everyday life, still here uh, as we live through these troubled times. So, my good friends, may you enjoy this second reflection of the day from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen as he teaches us how to meet communism. Please enjoy. 
We present now the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen, who delivers the fifth address in his series generally entitled, Light Your Lamps. The title of today's address is, How to Meet Communism. Friends, the burden of this broadcast is the practical problem what a nation and a people can do to combat communism. Immediately there come to mind three ways in which it should not be done. First, not by name-calling and hate, for we cease to be children of the Heavenly Father by hating those who hate us. Secondly, communism should not be attacked on the grounds that it is opposed to liberalism or monopolistic capitalism, because from an economic point of view alone, all these systems are unsatisfactory. Thirdly, we are not to meet communism on the false assumption that if economic conditions were bettered, that we would have no communism. Communism is not an economic doctrine. It is a philosophy of life. Economic conditions were very good in the Garden of Eden, but Lucifer started his revolt there. And this brings us to five positive ways of meeting communism the economic, political, social, educational, and spiritual. Communism can be met politically by choosing candidates in elections, not on the basis of political parties, nor on the basis of the economic class they support, but on the basis of the moral worth of the candidates, namely whether a candidate is a husband of one wife, whether he says his prayers, whether he refuses to follow a party line dictated from abroad, whether he believes we ought to live up to the Atlantic Charter, and whether he agrees with George Washington that religion and morality are essential for national life. A nation always gets the kind of politicians it deserves. If a time ever comes when the religious Jews, Protestants, and Catholics ever have to suffer under a totalitarian state which would deny to them the right to worship God according to the light of their conscience, it will be because for years they thought it made no difference what kind of people represented them in Congress and because they abandoned the spiritual in the realm of the temporal. The economic way to meet communism is to make capitalists out of the workers by a wider diffusion of private property. Before suggesting how this can be done, a word about the morality of private property is necessary. It used to be when property was real rather than financial as it is today, that the right to property was inseparable from responsibility. A man owned a horse. He could show a title to it. He could say, it is mine. But the responsibility for the horse was also his. If the horse trampled the neighbor's garden, he had to remunerate the neighbor. But because he owned, controlled, and managed the horse, he was also entitled to 100% of the profits from the horse. With the development of finance, those two things which were meant to be joined, ownership and responsibility, became separated and divorced. Those who own today do not labor or manage, and those who labor or manage generally do not own. 
the stockholders are distinct from labor and management. Since the stockholders have surrendered responsibility, they have given up one of the essential notes of property, and hence one of the titles to profits. But the owners or stockholders still claim all the profits, though they have surrendered 50% of the title, namely labor and responsibility. The stockholders are only the passive creators of wealth. The active creators are the workers. For that reason, there should be a modification of the wage system so as to give the workers a share in the profits, management, and ownership of industry where they work. A fuller development of this particular theme will be sent you on request. There is no doubt as to which has the clearer title to profits. Certainly the man who clips coupons and sends in his postcard for a vote by proxy to the corporation is less entitled to the profits of industry than those who wipe sweat from their brows at the end of the day. I'm very happy to say that during this past week in Washington, I spoke at a meeting of a corporation and its workers where this suggested plan of mine of sharing profits with the workers was put into actual effect. Communism wants the dictator to own all the property. We want to share property with the workers. In terms of analogy, capitalism wants a few men to own all the hens, the workers receiving a few eggs for preparing the nest. The communist solution is putting all the hens and all the eggs in the hands of a dictator cook who makes an omelet which is bound to be unsatisfying because not all the people like omelets and most people do not like the way the dictator cooks anyway. And the Christian solution is to distribute the hens so that every man can cook his eggs the way he likes them and even eat them raw if that is his definition of freedom. By distributing a wide mass of property owners through the country with their scattered powers, privileges, and responsibilities, one creates the greatest resistance in the world to tyranny, either political or economic. For just as a man is free on the inside, because he can call his soul his own, so he begins to be free on the outside because he can call property his own. Then property becomes what it was always intended to be, the economic guarantee of human liberty. The social way to meet communism would be by the appointment of chaplains in industry from each of the three faiths. There is no escaping the fact that once the individual enters into a new human relationship and one at which he spends most of his day, almost his entire week, there is a specific need of ministering to him in that relationship and not apart from it. In order that the chaplain might better operate within an industry, he should build a church immediately near the factory where labor, management, and capital could assist at morning mass and learn that all who eat one bread are one body. If men would get down on their knees together, there would be much less need of using fists against one another. 
But the chaplain's functions, of course, would go beyond the factory church, as the army assigns a chaplain an office within the army camp. So the industry should assign quarters for a chaplain in which he may be freely consulted at all times by labor and management. For there is no reason why the iron gates of a factory should prevent the modern worker from enjoying what the village blacksmith used to enjoy. Accessibility to his rabbi, to his minister, and to his priest. The chaplain should receive no salary, no expense account, no money of any kind from either stockholders, management, or labor unions in order that they may not be beholden to anyone. And the supreme value of industrial chaplains would be the organization of men on a non-competitive or spiritual basis. And then when the time came to elect labor leaders from the industry, the communists who thrive in vociferous minorities at late hours, when the decent people want to go to bed, would find themselves stalemated and checked by those who came out in great numbers to keep America American and their souls their own. Another way to meet communism would be to utilize our religious schools for adult education. These schools are in operation only about six hours a day, most of them closing at three o'clock in the afternoon. It would seem in the present crisis advisable to use the late afternoon and evening hours for adult education. Among many subjects taught, there would be courses in religion, the training of labor leaders, courses on marriage, property, and the philosophy of peace. Through such courses, our people would learn that the alternative between right and left is not the same as right and wrong, and that the best way to make the world better is to make ourselves both better and wiser. Now, finally, there is the spiritual. Communism has an appeal to two classes the simple and the frustrated. First, the simple or the naive believe that communism is interested in the workers and the poor. This appeal, however, does not last very long among the simple people once they come to know communism as it actually is. Then they reject it. That is why the Communist Party has such a rapid turnover, reaching as high as 40% within a few years. Toward these simple, deluded people, there must be, on our part, a recognition of their good instincts and, above all, their passion for social justice. Deluded though they are, they are nevertheless unconscious and involuntary instruments of the Holy Spirit. Our task must be to educate them, for as their attachment to communism grows in ignorance, so it will decline with knowledge. But by far the greater appeal, however, of communism is to the disillusioned and the frustrated. This group becomes communist not because they are convinced that communism is right, but because they have a hidden hate against something or somebody. Individually, they feel impotent to vent their hate upon a person or a class or an institution, but believe that if they join the party, 
they could find a corporate expression for their pent-up animosities and their damned-up hate. Every frustrated, disillusioned, discontented soul and everyone who has lost his faith is a potential member of the Communist Party. For example, those who started out with a great lust for wealth and never achieved it, or who became disappointed capitalists, will join the Communist Party to get even with the capitalists whose wealth they envy and whose property they one day want to possess. Those who have felt the sting of uncharitable fellow men who made fun of their race or color or nationality or refused to give them the hand of fellowship are also likely material for communism. Not because communism can give them recognition, which it does not in practice, but only because these people get a chance to get even with those who are unkind. Those two who have never been able to think clearly flock to communism, where they have to do no thinking whatever, but where obedience to a dictator gives them the illusion of power. Those who became bored with life because of the, their anti-moral lives which produce chaos in their souls look for a communist dictatorship outside of themselves to organize their chaos. Those who lost the power of self-regulation from within through loss of virtue seek and impose regulation from without in the party. Those who lost the goal of existence, the purpose of life, invite a communist tyranny to impose a goal to dictate a purpose. Those whose consciences bother them because of their sins or loss of faith, become communists to persecute religion in a vain attempt to ease their loss of peace and God. And the supreme advantage of all of these hates is that they enable the frustrated and the disillusioned who join the party to combine the strongest affirmations for social justice with the most contemptuous disregard for individual justice and personal betterment. They could not become Christians, which they want really in their own heart, because Christianity would demand personal righteousness. But in communism, they have a seeming sense of righteousness and justice by hating the wrongs of others without any obligation to better their own lives. Now, what attitude should we take to these people? Well, above all else, no hatred. Rather start with the assumption that these disillusioned individuals are perhaps not so very far from the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, they are much closer than the liberals and the indifferent, who have neither hates nor loves. Once they come to see that what they hate is evil and not an economic system, and what they are seeking is God and not their own miserable atheism in which each one makes himself a God and me an atheist, they are at the very door of that peace that only Christ can open to them. We therefore must always make a distinction between the ideology and the person, between communism and communists. Communism is to be hated as a doctor hates pneumonia in his sick child. But the communists are potential children of God 
and they must be loved as the sick child is loved. A Christian who starts with the assumption that all communists ought to be annihilated or sent to concentration camps, which indeed they would do to us, is not worthy of the name of Christ. We are to seek not their extinction, but their transfiguration. Does God hate us because we are sinners? Then shall we hate them for being a particular brand of sinner? Was not Paul in the early church a greater persecutor of religion than Tito or Stalin or Hitler? There must have been thousands of Christians who had hoped that God would send a coronary thrombosis to Paul in order to take him out of this life. I'm sure the early Christians must have prayed that God would send someone to answer that fiery and zealous enemy. Send an apostle, they prayed, to answer Paul. Well, God heard their prayers, and God sent Paul to answer Paul. God's power is more manifested in conversion than in destruction, for he knows that the bitterest enemies make the best saints and not those weak-minded brothers and sisters who hate communism only when their newspapers hate them. Communists will be brought to the democratic and the Christian way of life, not by argument, because communism is anti-rational. But they will be bought by prayer, by charity, by kindness. Some years ago, one of the editors of a communist newspaper wrote a series of articles against religion and this its unworthy disciple. Now, what would you do in such a case? Challenge the editor to a duel? Given my physique, you would not. And then I was a Christian. So I invited the communist editor to dinner. The first thing he did was to say, now what we have against you is that you refuse to admit that Russia is a democracy. I said, how can Russia be a democracy in the light of Article 125 of the Soviet Constitution? He said, what is Article 125? My good man, I said, I did not invite you here to talk about communism. I invited you here to talk about your soul and the Blessed Mother. And I talked about the Blessed Mother for one hour. Nine years passed in which there was a prayer every day for that man. He now no longer has to worry about following the party line. He is a free man. His name is Louis Budenz. And this, I think, is the real way to fight communism, by prayer. So may I ask you Jews and Protestants and Catholics in my radio audience to offer a holy hour of prayer a day for the peace of the world and for the spreading of the love of God. God love you. Now we invite you to join Monsignor Sheen as he offers this prayer. Sovereign Lord and Master, we fought so long we forgot what we were fighting for. When we left thy light, like tiny gods we quarreled in the twilight of our petty rivalries. Give us in thy tender mercy the peace we do not deserve. We pray for our president, our congress, and our courts, that they may sustain and defend religion and morality, without which no nation can long endure. Save us most of all from ourselves. Restore love to our broken homes, the joy of a good conscience to our frustrated lives. 
the four freedoms to the enslaved peoples of the world and to our foolishness give the wisdom of thy ways. Make us new men and light our lamps. In particular, we pray for the people of Russia, whom we consecrate to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, that individually and as a nation they may realize their fondest hopes and know thee freely and openly, O Christ, whom they are now forced to love and serve in secret, not for our worthiness, but for thy mercy. Grant us these petitions, O Christ Jesus, Son of the living God. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed these two reflections today as Archbishop Sheen teaches us about communism and uh, this series of talks that he gave back in 1947 was turned into a book titled Communism and the Conscience of the West. And it is a great read, and I, I really strongly believe that everyone should have a copy in their own personal library because, uh, sadly, uh, communism doesn't seem to want to go away. Uh, it's still with us today, and so uh, it's always nice to know how to refute communism. And, of course, Fulton Sheen gives us a lesson plan. And so that book, Communism and the Conscience of the West, can be purchased by our good friends at Tan Books. And, of course, they've been around for many, many years and a trusted name in Catholic publishing. Uh, again, Tan Books can be found on the web uh, by simply going to www tanbooks.com and there they have a number of uh, Fulton Sheen titles uh, beautiful hardcover editions and so again a handsome collection um, so I cannot say enough that everybody needs to have a few Bishop Sheen books in their collection so again Communism and the Conscience of the West by Fulton Sheen uh, available at Tan Books uh, wherever fine books are sold and speaking of fine books, uh, there are other books uh, that you can look through on our website uh, of bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, by simply clicking on bishopsheentoday.com, you will find uh, a video library of over a hundred of uh, Sheen's recordings from, uh, again, the, the beautiful series, Your Life is Worth Living, uh, the one that we all know from television days, and, of course, many of his lectures, too. So, uh, again, I, I, I try to watch at least one Fulton Sheen video a day. Uh, they're so entertaining and uh, so uplifting. And so, again, uh, the video library is there, the audio library with all of our um, archives uh, going way back to, I think, to 2012. So uh, there's 10 years of audio uh, files there on the website. And, of course, a great selection of books. And it's simply, uh, again, the website bishopsheentoday.com. All right. Our hour has come to an end so quickly, so uh, I'd ask you to invite a friend as we continue this journey with Archbishop Sheen. And so until next time we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. 
You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.